This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Benjamin Pierce, President of Vanguard Charitable, a major nonprofit organization with a mission to increase philanthropic giving by granting assets to charity. The organization establishes philanthropic accounts with its clients and has come to lead by example in the philanthropic arena by offering donors a flexible and convenient way to give and maximize their charitable impact. Vanguard Charitable was founded in 1997 as an offshoot of Vanguard, one of the world's largest and most respected investment management firms. In the organization's 17 years, Vanguard Charitable has had a total charitable impact of $4.6 billion and has established and maintained over 10,000 active charitable accounts. The organization is consistently ranked among the largest charities in the country. Ben was hired as the first employee of Vanguard Charitable in 1998. Before joining, he served as the Chief Operating Officer for the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, worked for Philadelphia National Bank, Air Products and Chemicals, and FMC Corporation in a series of financial administration positions. He graduated from Harvard College and has an MBA from Villanova University. Ben, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Robert, thank you. Sure. Pleased to be here. Sure. So, Ben, share with us the journey that landed you the position as Vanguard Charitable's first employee back in 98. So this is a five-hour interview, Robert, is that what this is? Uh, so I'll try to keep the story short. And actually, I have thought about this over the years um, as careers evolve. So uh, I think there are two or three parts, but I'll keep it quick. Um, one is I grew up in the Boston area, Robert, and uh, youngest of four siblings. And uh, my father worked, my mother didn't. But my parents, um, I remember as a uh, kind of in my eight, nine, ten-year-old and early teens, Every summer, they would take us into various parks within the city of Boston, and not not the big public gardens and stuff like that. But they would purposely take the different take us to different parts of the city where we might not normally go, see the community that lived there, understand the people that nothing not we could understand, them, but at least expose us to them. And I've always remembered that as a way that just kind of opened up my vision to other ways of life um, and that we were very blessed to be in a place we were and all these other people were doing great things. So it just created an open landscape for me and I've never forgotten it and I think that's an underpinning. And another story I've told from my youth is to our team actually a, a couple weeks ago is I can remember I think it was 1957, I was about five, and all of a sudden I came home one day and there were these two people in our house I never met before, and they didn't speak English. And they were refugees from the Hungarian, um, the communist takeover of Hungary. And a In lot of 56. Yeah, 56, yeah. sorry. Yeah, so I was four. But I remember it, and my mother had, you know, through her religious affiliation, had signed up to take on some people. She had four little kids in her house, and she took on two more. So there was a spirit of, of giving and being open in my family. And I think that resonated with me. That's the first part of the story. Um, the second part of the story, is, as you recounted there in my background professionally, is I did work for a bunch of financial, financial firms um, in the financial component of it. 
Um, and um, I was okay at that. But um, my boss came to me one day, when, and, and I was in my later 30s at the time and had two kids of my own. And he said, Ben, you know, you're a good guy. You work hard. You're smart enough. You're, um, you're doing okay. But you know what? I can tell you really don't like what you do. And I'm really encouraging you to go out and figure out what you'd really like to do. Because if you can figure that out, you will probably even be better at what you do, and you'll be a happier guy. Um, and I took John's advice, uh, and over the next period of time, I, I did switch gears, and that was in the late 30s, and and I, I went off and did some studies of myself and so forth, and what I discovered was uh, I like to do different things all day long, um, not just sit and do the same thing all day, which is what I was doing in those days. And... Um, and even though I'm fairly introspective, I really do like the energy that comes out of people uh, and relationships. And so I decided to switch into the nonprofit sector. And it was a high-risk roll of the dice because I was going to make less money. It's not easy to kind of enter into the nonprofit sector later in life unless you're really at the top of the heap. So I, But I was very lucky and was able to get that job at the College of Physicians as a COO. Um, and it did allow me to do lots of different things, which is what I respond to. It did allow me the personal interaction, which I respond to. And I, and my kids were able to grow up, and I was around while they grew up. So it had a lot of benefits. Plus, I liked the mission. And I just, I like the, I like working with people who really are working for a public mission rather than just potentially increasing shareholder wealth. Um, so there are a number of pieces around that that really worked. And then how did I find my way to Vanguard uh, Charitable? Sorry, I'm already taking the first hour of this conversation. No, no, but, that's um, um, is, um And it's another interesting story. In 1975, when I was at the bank, I took out a young guy to lunch and I, uh, who was interviewing for a job in the same program I was. I didn't know him. And I checked the form afterwards to say, bank, yeah, hire him. And they did hire him. And he came to Philadelphia. Uh, and he called me up when he was coming to Philadelphia. I said, Ben, I'm coming to, I got the job and I'm coming to Philadelphia. I remember you took me out to lunch. I need a place to stay. So he crashed in my apartment floor in Haverford. We were both in our early 20s and we became friends. It's 1975. And then 23 years later, 1998, in January, he calls me up. And we, we have become friends over this time. Uh, but he calls me up and he says, Ben, you know, I'm, I'm at Vanguard and, um, and we're creating this charity. And it's a separate entity, and we're going to administer donor-advised funds. We think it's a cool opportunity to increase philanthropy in America. Um, and you, know, you might think about putting your hat in the, in the in the ring on this because you have kind of a corporate background from those early years, and now you've got this nonprofit background. Um, and you you might you know you might put your hat in on this, and I did, and I was lucky enough to get the job. But it, it's a, I've told the story to a number of people at Vanguard, young people at Vanguard Charitable, as an example of you just never know um, and don't burn bridges. And, and you never know when the next opportunity will come from. And I've always thanked Jeff for that. He's thanked me for 1975, and I had occasion to thank him a week ago when he retired from Big Vanguard 
um, I had occasion to thank him for 1998. So, did he actually have you in mind um, when, when there, as a possibility, when they were starting Vanguard Charitable? I don't think so. No, I don't believe so, Robert, uh, because I know they had a, a whole a bunch of local candidates, mostly local, uh, to potentially run this. The key thing was that since Vanguard Charitable is a separate public charity and separate legally and operationally and technologically and always from Vanguard, other than carrying the Vanguard name on it, is they wanted someone from outside. That was very important to send the message that this organization is, in fact, independent of Vanguard. So I think that was the only thing they were truly looking for. The fact that I brought the business background and the charitable background, I think, was... I've never asked Mr. Brennan, my boss, why he hired me. I probably should. Um, but maybe I don't want well, In fact, maybe I don't want to. But, uh, uh, I think 17 years, 16, 17 years speaks for itself. So. Well, I, I guess, I guess. But it, it's been uh, – so I think there are a lot of factors went into that that hiring. But uh, I've been a very lucky guy to do And given your background, is there a reason why it took you, like, in, into your 40s before you actually joined a nonprofit, given yeah. how that was important and you were self-aware about that? Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question. Um, my sense is, you know, I get out of college since 1974, and, and a lot of my classmates are going off to fancy jobs. I have no clue what I want to do, but I do have to make some money. And I must admit, in, no, in that time, I did not think about the philanthropic world as an employer. I, I, I thought, you know, I should have a job. I, I knew I didn't want to go to graduate school. Um, I think I went to more baseball games and movies than classes in, in Cambridge in those years. I hate to admit that. But the Red Sox games. A few. <laughs> but um, uh, I did. Um, so I, knew, I wanted to have a job. I wanted to get out of Boston, where I grew up. I got to Philadelphia and stopped. Philadelphia is a great cultural town. Um, and I think it took me a while because, you know, three or four years later I'm married and, and you have responsibilities. So it didn't really click, even though I was doing some volunteer eventually with the Boy Scouts and certainly got engaged with my religious organization and so forth. Um, and those were all great experiences. But it never clicked with me until my boss, John, said, Yeah, Ben. You really should think about following something that you really love. And if you're good at it, it may take a while, but you'll be successful. And if you're worried about the financial side and your kids and all that kind of stuff, the economic side will probably follow. And and it, it can work. Um, and I've been lucky enough to have it work in my case. And what was your experience as the first employee at Vanguard Charitable Life? <laughs> the very first employee. What was that experience? Uh, fearful. Fearful. I was taking a risk um, uh, because I, you know I had a family to take care of, so forth. Uh, this was a kind of a new enterprise. It was, and and I remember asking Robert, Mr. Brennan, kind of shortly after I started to say, Jack, uh, can you share with me kind of maybe the business plan that that kind of you had been thinking about as you thought about setting this thing up. And he kind of looked at me and said, what are you talking about, Ben? We, uh, we don't have a business plan for this thing, this charity. You know, um, we're going to try this. And if it were, you know, we're going to build it. And if people come, well, we'll keep going and we'll add on and we'll keep going. And if it doesn't work, well, then we'll have to see. So there was definitely a risk associated with this. So, 
so that created fear in me, which is not a positive thing, and I don't believe in anyone's life. Um, but what became uh, and and so fear was one thing. A second thing was um, um, awareness of the of the complexity of trying to create something. Uh, even though, and I didn't know anything about donor-advised funds in 1998. No one, even though they'd been around for a long time at that point in the community foundation world, um, no one really knew much about them or how what you needed to do to make them successful and how to operate them. Um, and so I had a lot to learn, um, but the complexity of it was a well, maybe a surprise to say, "Ooh, there are a lot of you got to you got to." pay attention to all these little details and it's like probably any charity or any organization you've really got to pay attention to the details as you get going um, and the third thing that I quickly learned was um, and, and this was the first time it really came home to bear on me was I can't do it all myself i got to trust other people i got to find good people to help out and i got to trust them to do what's needed to be done. I need to be fairly articulate about what I think needs to be done, but then you got to say, okay, Nicole, um, you know, this is what we need to try to accomplish. Here are some parameters. Here's what the end might look like in this particular thing, and, you know, go to it. Um, so building trust, um, and I haven't always been good at it, but is I mean, and I think maybe even more in the charitable enterprise because eventually you're going to need donors and you're going to need people to provide you assets and trust is the foundation of that too. If they don't trust you, you personally and you, your organization, and you that you're, you're true to your mission, if they, if they, if they don't trust you, you're not going to give them any money. Um, and, and that's, so that was, a pretty, even though I was 30, what was I? I was now 45 because I spent those years in college. Um, kind of late in life to realize that, but but really fundamental. Were you given a directive of how big your team should be? Was that your decision? No. Um, I'm smiling because um, in the interview process, Robert, in, and it was a February interview in 1998 with Mr. Brennan, um, and, and he's a he likes early mornings. So the interview was at 7 o'clock in the morning. And it was a, a dank, cold, wet, dark morning. And so I have this very nice interview. Not that you remember it well, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It had no impact on me whatsoever. <laughs> but um, and I'm sitting in his office, and, um, and we have a nice conversation. I think it's going pretty well. And I figure, well, I better ask a question or two to let him know that I really am interested in this and that maybe I'm kind of got half a brain in my head. And so it's not a very very creative question, but I said, well, Jack, you know, what do I need? How am I going to be measured for success after a year running this charity? Do I have to, you know, bring in a billion dollars? And that was the number I used in 1998. And he paused, and he wrinkled his eyebrows, and that's always a dangerous thing when Mr. Brennan wrinkles his eyebrows. But he wrinkles eyebrows, and he finally said, Ben, you don't get it. You just don't get it. That's not what this is about it all. Um, all you have to do is run a perfect charity. And I pause at that point, and I don't know what the heck he's talking about. So I finally just, I say, I'm thinking to myself, should I, 
fess up to that, that I don't understand what he's talking about, or should I kind of bluff my way through? And 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 I had been given some advice by my friend Jeff that whatever you do, be be yourself when you're interviewing. Don't be anything other than that. So so I said, Jack, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and he said, Well, that's okay. You'll figure it out if you're successful. And that's all. Those are all the orders I were I was given. Um, and so I started in June of '98 um, with this, you know, the charitable mission of increased giving in America. We're going to do it through the through donor advised funds. And you know, we've got to begin to create uh, an enterprise that has people I can trust to support it. Um, and hired the first person in August, the second person, I'm 0001, and hired a person in August and then hired another one, two in November. Um, and one of those people is still with us today. Um, she's a great personality um, and, 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 and has loved her experience too. So very interestingly, Robert, very little direction in terms of, or a few boundaries. Um, I think the only other thing that eventually happened, we began to have some success, not much. You know, we, I think our, uh, in our first six months, we were given uh, something like, um, you know, $4 million. Um, that's a lot of money for an enterprise that most people don't even know about. And, and most people don't know, didn't know about donor advised funds. So that's still a lot of money. Um, but, you know, it just, Step by step, incrementalism is a big thing I believe in. Don't uh, I'm not a believer in um, a big splash. I'm rather interested in okay, let's do this. Let's see how we done on that, and then let's take the next step. And the um, um, Mr. Brennan, who's still the chairman of the board of Vanguard Charitable, that's certainly been his approach too. So I already had it. Fortunately, we also matched in that in terms of, of his kind of view of, of how to grow an organization. And do I understand you during the first year you literally had, in 98, you literally had only four employees? Oh, I had, had which employees? It had, you literally only had four employees the first year yeah. in 1998? We did have, yes, four full-time employees. We did, we were able to borrow some resources from Van, Big Vanguard who were able to help us. And that is huge. And that's a good example of, in terms of a, a lot of charities don't have that uh, ability to go um, and find resources to help them out. And these resources were made available by Brennan and Vanguard to support us. Eventually, they all disappeared, and we stood on our own feet in about three years. But we did have that. And that's, I wish... Um, uh, I wish more ent- organization, corporations could do that for charities, create partnerships with charities to provide a, 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 a foundation. Because that is, the, that is the, I think, the biggest barrier to a charity's success it are those, either those starting days or those transformative days when you know, they need people, they need money to support their, their causes. And if they don't have those partnerships, where are they going to get it? And to have access to the perspectives and the resources, yeah. it's, it's absolutely it, crucial. It, um, and, and so I know we've been really blessed with that. At the same time, um, the board of Vanguard Charitable, which Brennan is the chair of, 
back in those early days, um, you know, we were running some big deficits um, because we were spending money on salaries. We didn't have much of a... Um, our revenue for our charity is driven off of the assets that are given to us. We charge a fee for the technology and the due diligence and for all that we do behind the scenes to support them. But when you don't have many assets um, in, in the way a donor advised fund works, you don't create much of a revenue. But after about three years, Mr. Brennan said to me, he said, Ben, this is all good. You know, we built it. You built it. It's working. But, you know, you're losing money. Um, and you got to get, you got to figure out a way to get this to break even. And what we actually did, we were paying for those resources from Vanguard. We were creating a loan with Vanguard. So we were paying them for those resources at that cost. Um, but that was getting put on a tab that we owned, and that's still on our balance sheet today. It was still a remnant of that. And he said, you got to figure this out. you got to get this charity to operate as a charity where you're break-even. And so what we, in fact, did was we changed our technology platform because Vanguard helped us set, us set up, which is huge, and we're hugely grateful for it. But we were paying for it, and, and it was all going on a loan. It was on our balance sheet. And so we switched out that and went to an outside provider and saved a lot of money. So we got, we got, we took care of half of our shortfall there. And then we did something else, which is not normally what, um, a Vanguardian type of organization would do. We actually raised our fees, um, to make up for the other half of our deficit. As a percentage of assets. Yeah, as a percentage of assets. Um, and that actually solved the problem within a year so that we were able to um, be stand on our own financially. We pay all of our own bills. We always, you know, we have that loan that we build up with Vanguard. We've actually fully, well, we've repaid it, it, it capped out about six and a half million bucks. And, and that's another big advantage we had as a charity. We had a source of funding. But we've actually repaid it all except for about a million dollars now. Right. And that source of funding let you get started without going under before you actually exactly. got it running. Exactly. And without that, you wouldn't be existing today. No doubt about it. Yeah. No doubt. And so many other charities yes. out there don't have access to that. And so you know, there are lots, there's lots of, of um, efforts, over, even today, still going on, and maybe even more so, about of venture philanthropy and trying to create funds of money that will support charities in their startup causes. And it's a, it's a, it's a great idea. It's needed for other charities to succeed. Um, but you do have to stay focused and you gotta, my estimation, you gotta run a charity. You want that mission to drive the charity, the employees and to, and, and uh, to reach out to the community. But you also gotta pay attention to how you operate it so that you do. Um, take care of your finances you, so that the donors can then look at you and say, yeah, they really know what they're doing. They're, they're taking care of the mission, but they're also taking care of the books. you got to do both. And earlier you mentioned fear as something to be avoided. Um, the other side of that phrase is that fear can be a great motivator. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you not believe that? Um, I don't, Robert. I, I think, well, I, I'll, I'll modify that. It can be a motivator. But I think in the long term, it's a negative motivator. That's my own personal estimation. I would um, um, certainly, I've been fearful over the years, uh, and that gets my attention. But it causes stress, 
and stress is unhealthy physically, emotionally, psychologically. Um, and so in the long term, I think that creates a, um, a challenge that is not necessarily going to end up well. My preference is to try to um, both lead and motivate by, by uh, incentives and by creating a mission that people can respond to, providing create you know, positive feedback where you can, and to, and to working um, is having people focus on their strengths and work to their strengths. And particularly um, with uh, employees who may have had other careers, and we have a good number of those who come into us looking Including, for, obviously, yourself. Yes, yeah. including myself, is... You know, in my case, play the fact that I really like doing this conversation with you, Robert, one minute, talking to one of my direct reports the next minute, talking to a client the third, something all day long. That's what I love. Just makes I'm much happier doing that. Right. So playing the strengths, I think, is a much better solution than trying to create fear. It's a little bit different with younger employees, and we have a lot of younger employees too, which is wonderful because they bring such energy and fearlessness to some degree. I think there, and I'm not as good at this as I should be, probably providing very clear feedback on things that they might think about as they're developing their careers and, and things that they might work on. I think if you do that well, that's a really big, you know, had someone told me early on, you know, when I was 25 instead of 38, you know, find something you really love, Ben, and focus on that, rather than, oh, here's a different way to do that uh, macro um, um, calculation on Excel or something or other. Um, it is important to give direct feedback, and you got, but you got to do that well, and care, particularly for the younger folks, as far as I'm concerned. And when it happened with you with Vanguard Charitable, it happened at a time where when you said if you were 28 years old, who in the world knows what would have happened yeah. had you been given that advice at that time? Yeah, that's right. Who knows what would have happened? Right. That's right. And how many employees does Vanguard Charitable have? We now have, have? Uh, 50 full-time employees, and, it's, um, and we have about another 10 kind of seasonal and contracted resources. And I can tell you, it is the... It, it, and I've said this to a bunch of folks at Vanguard Show. It is my biggest source of joy out of the organization um, because we have a bunch of people. You know, when we started, we had zero. And, you know, we had two. And then we had six. And then we have eight and 12. And we had, and, and a lot of, you know, it was very hard to find people to work in the early days for this enterprise that was small. No one knew anything about it. Um, and but we did find some people who really responded to the mission. That's first always, and and they were pretty young, and a bunch of them are still here. Um, and it's been fun to see them uh, go from being kind of single and starting off at 23 um, out of college with us, and really not sure what they're getting into. And now it's 10 or 12 years later. And they've gone through, you know, relationship building in their private lives. They may have gotten married. They may have bought houses. They may have had children. And and all while they're doing that, they've really just found, you know, they're doing great work for us. And they've built their careers. They may be frustrated with the compensation. That's a recurring theme in the nonprofit sector. I get that. But 
they really are doing a great job and they've really taken hold of their lives. And that, that to me is incredibly rewarding. And maybe at some point a legacy to say, okay, I've been lucky enough to kind of get this thing going, but I'll be, I hopefully be able to turn it over to whoever follows with a wonderful team in place. And that's great. That's, that's fun. So you've seen a, a, uh, a growth in the employees of the organization along with the growth of the organization yes. itself. Yes, absolutely. And what's your sense of, of young people these days joining nonprofits? Is there, is there a real desire to do that? I, I, I think uh, categorically, yes. Yeah. At least in our experience, in what we've experienced within, as we do, because uh, we do do a, um, we do a lot of, uh, we encourage our team we actually have an internal group um, called the Community Investment Task Force that's employee-run, um, and their charge is, um, is just to create ways that we can fulfill our mission separately from giving all this money away, um, but how can we individually go out into the community, either through volunteer PTO day, uh, paid time off days, or by going, we have a community day every year where we take the whole organization and go to a charity and volunteer locally in the, in the Philadelphia area here. In this past September, we, we actually did a little different because we're getting bigger, and a lot of charities can't take 50 people, so we actually chose five different charities and sent 10 people to each of those charities on different days. And, peop- and, and just about two weeks ago in our monthly business meeting, we spent the whole business meeting not talking about the business. We had those five teams report in on their community day experience, and they each could do it any way they want. It was the best business meeting we've had in years. It was people, they did videos, they did skits. They, it was wonderful. And certainly a lot of the people that are coming in to work for us are coming because of the mission, uh, because they really do want to try to have more giving go uh, be created in the United States and nudge that 2% of GDP number that's been around forever, yeah. I mean, for 40 years, has moved, and that's one of my pet peeves, and I think some of these folks really want to try to make that, and, and hopefully we can help move that through what we do at Vanguard Charitable. So there's a shared sense of giving back among your employees. I, I, I may be an idealist. I may be oblivious to the reality. I think so. Yeah. Uh, I really feel it. Um, um, again, we're not perfect about it, but... Um, we really do, I think, have a, a group of people who are committed to the to the mission. And you mentioned the mission a number of times. So for our listeners, what is the mission of Vanguard Charter? Very, in its most simplistic basis, it's just to increase giving in America. We've uh, adjusted it a little bit to say increase uh, philanthropy in America and its impact over time. Impact and philanthropy are two words that seem to go together a lot today, particularly Donors across the country of all sorts, I think, are talking about wanting to have an impact. And a measurable impact. Yeah, and a measure, and that's, that's the challenge, is how do you measure impact? Um, and it's a challenge for us, it's a challenge for many charities, it's a challenge for the donors to try to really figure that out. Lots of people are working on that. But, um, we have added the impact part to our mission. Um, because we're giving away a lot of money. We're giving, um, we're going to give away, I don't know, $650 million, $700 million in this fiscal year that ends this coming June. And that's nice to give it all away, but we really 
you know, we want to encourage our donors and the charities that they're supporting through our grants to really try to figure out how can you measure are we doing more um, because we do want to do more as governments recede in terms of their their engagement with some of this stuff who's going to fill that void and it's got to be philanthropy I mean there are really only three there's government there's philanthropy and there are individuals um, and companies but companies aren't there corporations aren't there it's got to be philanthropy This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and Benjamin Pierce, President of Vanguard Charitable. And how, how do philanthropic accounts function? Um, thank you for that question, because it's one that uh, amazingly, even after Vanguard Charitable 17 years and, and a lot of successful donor-advised funds slash philanthropic accounts, people still don't understand. So here's how they work. Yes. Technically, you, you mentioned philanthropic account. We like that because we think that's a good name for it. Technically, they're donor-advised funds. That's the IRS-approved giving vehicle. So a donor-advised fund is on, a, on an IRS menu of giving options that include foundations, donor-advised funds, various forms of trusts, now you begin to get into more esoteric things like field of interest funds, pooled income funds, supporting orgs. But a donor-advised fund is the technical giving vehicle. And a donor-advised fund, in one description, is, um, is a giving product that is a much simpler, much less expensive uh, version of a foundation. That's kind of one way to look at it. Because people know about foundations. They'll know about Gates, know about Rockefeller, but they won't know about it. So that's one version of it. The other kind of more um, uh, descriptive version of it, I'm going to pick on you, Robert. You're the donor. You have some appreciated assets. You know the most tax-effective way to give is to give away the shares of your Google that you bought at opening at 100 a bunch of years ago. Before I get charged the capital gains tax. That's correct. Um, so you know that, but you don't know quite how to do that. Um, and then what you hear is about this donor-advised fund vehicle. Um, and you say, okay, all right, I'm going to do that. And you can actually go online to many of the providers and do this to us with us, Vanguard Charitable and others. And you set up your account... Um, and you're the donor, and, and when, you, when you do this first part, there are really only two parts to it. You set up your account. You get to name your account. That's kind of fun. Uh, it's not yours legally, but you name your account. You're going to name yourself as the advisor to this account. You're the donor. You're going to turn to be the advisor eventually, donor advised, and you've created a fund. So don't revise fund. That's where the name comes from. So you've named it. You've named yourself as the advisors. You tell us what you're. You tell the 
donor-advised fund provider, the assets you're going to give, um, Google in this case, let's say, um, and you pick successor advisors, so what happens to the account after you die, and you could give all the assets away or the monies in the account to charity directly. You could name your heir, your kids, or whatever to succeed you. There are a number of things you can do around succession. And you, 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 del- you uh, designate how you want the monies to be invested within this account, this philanthropic account. Um, and um, we're just going to call it the Robert Fund for now. Um, and so you do all those things. That takes about 10 minutes. And then you fund it, and you have to send your instructions off to your broker or whatever to send some shares of Google to our brokerage account. And we take those shares, um, and we give you a tax, a fair market value tax deduction for the value at the time you lose control of those assets. And we... Um, and you've you've you know you've mitigated the capital gains because you gave the asset away rather than the dollars from it. Um, so you've gotten two tax breaks. We Vanguard Charitable take those Google shares, sell them, convert to cash, dump the cash into the Robert Fund. It's now legally our money. You have given monies to a charity. We are a five hundred one c three charity for which you've gotten those tax breaks. But the monies are now in that Robert Fund, and you are the advisor on that account. It's kind of like being a trustee on a trust. Um, And now as the advisor on the account, you get to suggest to us, Vanguard Charitable, you know, I'd like to give $1,000 to the Boy Scouts of America, and I'd like to give 500 bucks to... um, uh, a better chance in Radnor, Pennsylvania, and I'd like to give ten thousand dollars to my alma mater. And you, as the advisor on the Robert Fund, you can suggest grants to any public charity, five hundred one c three, in America, and there are about a million and a half of them if you include religious affiliated organizations um, and governmental entities. Um, and as long as you're doing it to a five hundred one c three. You're recommending it to that, and as long as it's for the public good and it's not going to pay for your kid's education or for your hip replacement at the hospital or uh, other personal benefit, um, we'll send that grant, that check, out to that charity. It's coming from Vanguard Charitable, but you'll be acknowledged if you want, or you can be anonymous. So essentially, you, Robert, you set up an account, you give, you get deductions, you become the advisor, you grant, and then you pass the account on in a number of different ways. That's how that's how simple a philanthropic account is. It can be set up in a day, so at the end of the year, people can act on it very quickly if they're not certain, you know, exactly what charity they want to support in the moment. They can get their tax deduction by putting money in an. It seems very straightforward. Account. So, so what are the problems that organizations run into when they don't follow this path? That um, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think I, I just, I, I, if it's okay, I'm going to modify your question by a little bit. I'm going to say organizations are donors. So whether it's individuals or corporations or other entities that might be looking at giving and the problems that they could end up um, having. So as I think about it, one is, um, is tax inefficiencies and ineffectiveness. Um, a lot of people amazingly, to this day, still don't um, kind of understand the most tax-effective way to give is to give those Google shares because you can avoid the capital, the 15% capital gains, which can be significant. And so people may be in a rush, and they'll make a mistake of just saying, oh, I'll just write a check. 
And that's fine. That's very generous, but it's not the most effective way to give. So that's one thing um, that people may uh, miss. Um, uh, a second thing that uh, can be problematic, people may not think about, is, okay, I want to support a charity, and, um, and I give them a whole lot of money. And that's good. We support that idea. And, oh, by the way, if the donor just wants to support Penn State and that's all they want to do, they should just give to Penn State. Don't worry about foundations or, or donor-advised funds slash philanthropic accounts. Just give it to Penn State. And Penn State's big enough to take shares of stock. Um, and they doing that, they get the same benefits. Yeah, same uh, benefit. The, the, same the benefit. Capital gains and so forth. Yeah, so because Penn State's a 501c3, Vanguard Charles of 501c. So same benefits. Um, so if it's just going to be one share, just do it. But what they may miss is, you know, they may want to give, they may have a, um, a, f uh, a homeless shelter down the street. And that homeless shelter is doing a lot of good. But the homeless shelter doesn't have a brokerage account. They don't know how to take a stock gift. So what they may do is give the homeless shelter, you know, a whole lot of money that the homeless shelter is not really going to be well equipped to handle. Um, it's not. It's generous. They could use it. That's good, but they may not be ready to really handle. I'm going to make it up a fifty thousand dollar contribution. What do I do with this? Or make it the charity may then not apply it or use it very effectively. Um, so what the donor can do, put the assets into the donor advised fund, give five thousand dollars to the homeless shelter now, see how they do with it, and give another five thousand. So what may happen is that donors may. Um, may rush to a to an action that may not have the consequence intended consequences that they're they're wanting to have happen. So, as part of the responsibilities of Vanguard Charitable, do you actually you know make that decision or advise the donor give five thousand dollars to this homeless shelter? Let's see how they do with it. Do you also advise the homeless shelter what to do with it if they have any questions? Yeah, um, that's a that's a big big set of questions there. So, number one, we. Um, we do not, we Vanguard Charitable, do not render judgment on any donor's grant recommendation as long as it's to a 501c3. So there can be gay and lesbian task force charities over here on the left-hand side of the political spectrum, if you will, and there could be the John Birch organization over here on the right-hand side. If they're both 501c3s, we don't care. So one, we're not going to render it. We're agnostic in terms, as long as it's a 501c3. Um, number two is, yes, we do a lot of due diligence around the charity. One, to make, it's pretty easy to make sure it's a 501c3, but we also want to make sure the donors not get any private benefit because um, donors can put special purposes on their recommendation. So we're going to do due diligence to make sure that you, Robert, and your Robert Fund are not getting any private benefit out of this. And that's to protect us and protect you, the donor, that you're not doing something afoul. Um, but we are not going to get into um, um, saying, giving you, Robert, a lot of advice on exactly how to give your money. We do. We have published some thought pieces around effective ways to give and so forth, uh, and with some suggestions or things to think about. You know, have a plan, um, uh, start to implement the plan, all the kind of common sense types of things for donors to be thinking about. But we're not going to. Uh, advise you a lot on, um, uh, oh, gee, you're giving $100,000 to the homeless shelter. We are going to provide thought pieces to hopefully you know, make you think about those things. Um, and the other thing we don't do, 
um, in all candor, is we don't go to the charity and say, Charity, here are a few things that you might really change about the way you're operating. We don't have, that's not our core competency to give charities a lot of advice. We are talking to charities to say, for instance, here are some ideas about how you might raise some more money um, from organizations like Vanguard Charitable. Because um, there's a lot of monies in these in these donor advised funds. I think, in all candor, some some charities today feel that donor advised funds are are um, taking monies away from them or withholding monies over here that should, would have gone directly to them. We don't believe that's the case, so we're trying to really encourage charities to understand how donor advised funds work, and particularly that at least in our estimation, and we've had good success with this, that it's, in fact, a really good um, uh, conversation that charities can have with donors. There are about 185,000 families in America who have philanthropic accounts or donor-advised accounts now, and they're really powerful conversations can be had there. And we would love it if, if Robert named... Um, a charity as, their, as the successor to the account. And do you have any minimums for these accounts? I think a we lot do. of people. We yeah, do. I think a lot of people feel like when you mentioned like two hundred seventy-three thousand dollars being the average. I yep. think a lot of people feel like um, you know if they don't have half a million dollars, a million dollars, they can't do this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's a, a good question. We yes, we do have minimums, and and our minimums are higher than a lot of the community foundations that do a good job with donor advised funds and some of the national programs our minimum to start with an account is $25,000 that's a lot of money but if someone can get to that you get a good tax deduction again you might uh, uh, avoid the capital gains and if you can't use all the deduction in the first year you can roll the deduction ahead up to five more years. So hopefully over five or six years, you're going to be able to use that full deduction. Um, and, um, and number two is that once the account is established, you can, you can work down below 25,000 and go all the way down to 5,000 and, and fund, um, you know, very charities and, and work the uh, balance down. Um, so 25,000 to start. And then on the granting side, it's a $500 grant minimum um, on the, to the monies going to the Which charity. Which makes it accessible to a wide range of... I think it does. We, get, we do get beat up. This is the one we get beat up on the most because a lot of folks would like to be able to make uh, grant recommendations for 50 bucks and $75. That's good. We appreciate they want to do... I understand. I get people knocking on the door and soliciting me and letters and all the rest of it. But... We think a $500 grant is material, um, and and rather than $10-$50 checks, they get one $500 check. That is that's good. That's efficient for them. It's efficient for us, um, and 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 we really don't look at donor advised funds as being a checkbook for philanthropy, where you can write the $50 and the $75 and the $100 stuff. We really want the donors to be strategic about their giving and make material recommendations. And the $500 minimum, we think, gets to that. But as I said before, we do get people who, they'd love to see us have a lower minimum. We process 60,000 grant checks, so $500 or more every year. This year we'll probably do 70,000. Um, so we're doing, we're doing a lot of processing on the back end. If we went to $50, we'd probably be processing 500,000 and our costs would go up. And as costs are, it is important to understand costs in, in donor advised funds because 
as we start right at the beginning, there are two sets of costs on donor-advised accounts, um, philanthropic accounts. One is um, the administrative cost, which is the revenue stream to run the charities. Uh, and the second fee is the investment fee. Um, and because the Robert Fund does get invested, Robert gets to choose among um, options as to how he would like to have his philanthropic account invested. In our which, case. which go well beyond Vanguard, in Vanguard itself, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, well, in our case, it's mostly Vanguard. Our board has chosen Vanguard to be our investment manager of our $4.5 billion today. And I can tell you... Um, the weighted average of all our, uh, of our investment fee is 10 basis points, thanks to having Vanguard as our, our investment vehicle. Which is one of the lowest cost uh, investment firms in the country, isn't it? It, it is the lowest. Uh, yeah. uh, and that's one-tenth of one percent. There are other endowments uh, that are, I would guess, being charged 10 times that. So it, it we think the, the investment fee, in our case, is very low, and when you wrap the investment fee with the administrative fee, you end up with, you know, a at probably at the high end, 70 basis points for a $25,000, seven-tenths of 1%. So the costs are really important, just like any investment um, and any philanthropic choice. Foundations are going to be much more expensive. So does that mean that Vanguard Charitable is one of the the most inexpensive as far as fees go? Absolutely. Um, for donor account? Funds. Yes, I want to be straight up here is you can look at other providers that have an administrative fee that is very similar to ours, but if you look at the investment fee, when we're down at one-tenth of one percent, that's where we differentiate. So on an all-in basis, we will be significantly lower than most all other providers. It's a um, cost do matter, but it's it's also the value you get with uh, with that, and and you're going to get a lot for it, we believe. So, are, are governments generally supportive of philanthropies in this country? Uh, <laughs> that's a really interesting question. Um, IRS oversees um, public charities, as, as probably most people know. IRS is so stretched with everything going on in America, they've got a tough job, and I have a great deal of respect for what the IRS tries to accomplish. Um, yes, I think the government generally is philosophically supportive of charity in America, but um, through various committees within Congress and then through the Treasury Department and the IRS, the government does, there's a healthy skepticism about philanthropy too. One, are the tax breaks too big uh, going to donors who are supporting charity and, and therefore taking monies out of, the, out of the revenue stream of the Treasury Department of the United States? Um, so there's some concern there by, if you will, government. I think there's another concern that are all charities operating in a purely charitable way? Or are they beginning to edge into politics or into other areas? And those are good questions to ask. You'll get the political divide around that. Um, And I think it will be really interesting in the next year or two to see what happens with the debate about tax reform and and where the charitable reduction will um, end up in that debate. Um, I think most people would agree 
the U.S. government needs to look at tax reform, whether they can actually pull it off or not is another thing. And where does the charitable deduction, because that's the, that's the, that's where kind of the support of government to charity really will come down to. And obviously we will uh, be very much interested in making sure that charitable deduction is maintained as it currently is structured. Um, and I must admit, I wish uh, we work very hard with other donor-advised fund providers. We talk to each other all the time about best practices to make sure we truly are running our charity as a charity. And I, I, I have, it's one of my roles is to go around and talk to all these other providers, community foundations, federations, universities, umbrella organizations, and other big national providers, and make sure we actually are doing this right. And is part of one of your roles actually talking to politicians? Um, Yes, it is. Um, I, um, our approach is to only do that when absolutely necessary. And rather, my approach is to try to build bridges across the philanthropic community um, to get everybody aligned appropriately so we can tell a joint story rather than just have a single voice come forward to say this is the way it should be done. It is interesting when Vanguard Charitable applied for tax-exempt status back in 1997. We submitted the 1023 form, as it's called. Uh, the IRS took an inordinate amount of time kind of reviewing it because this is a, it was a different kind of model. Eventually got blessed in December of 98. And at the time, shortly thereafter, um, in early 98, I'm sorry, I got blessed in December 97, in early 98, um, there were pieces in the tax writings in Washington talking around the vanguard standards on donor-advised funds. And yes, that was negotiated with the IRS around, we do have payout requirements on donor-advised funds. That's an often, at least these days, misunderstood piece. Um, but we are required to pay out at least 5% of a five-year rolling average of our assets um, to charity um, each year. And every account, the Robert Fund, if you don't make some grants to public charities within a seven-year period, we are going to be in touch with you to say, Robert, you got to do some granting. And if you don't, we do it for you. Right, which uh, obviously is another advantage to Robert if Robert gets busy. and not That's to right. Yeah. That's right. Do you, um, when you look for people to hire, and we talked about this earlier, yeah. about the uh, the kind of people... Um, um, is there a particular kind of person? Are you looking for that person who maybe the salary is second yeah. or third on the list uh, and, and they're really looking to make a difference in yeah. their 20s? Uh, the, the people who we hire will be happiest who are really mission-based and, and, can, and, and can kind of recognize our mission and understand it and, and, uh, and, and respond to it. And the organization will benefit and I think we're more able to do that today as we've grown. We're bigger. We're a little bit more people coming in for interviews. And they say, oh, there are a lot of people here. There's a lot of stuff on the, on the boards. There are balloons flying. They're, you know, they can get, they can see it and feel, it's palpable almost today, Robert. So mission based is certainly number one. And number two is really just looking for smart people. That doesn't mean quick people. That just means that people can kind of, connect the dots, they can understand eventually processes, and, and, and they've got a good brain to be able to kind of absorb, because we are going to ask people to do lots of different things. That's still the reality 
of a charity, and a, and we're still only 50 people. So most of the people who come in really got to be able to juggle, and they got to be all smart to be uh, got to be smart to be able to do Which that. Which, as you've described, is something you love. So yes. why not find well, other people who love it? Well, we don't want everybody to be like Ben. Yeah. We know that yeah. we need to have we need to have Nicole's and Sheila's and and others, and that's diversity is very important too. And most. We've had an incredibly high retention rate. It, well, it's, it's interesting. Um, Which is a testimony in itself. Well, sometimes the board says, why is your retention rate so high? Are you being too easy or are you doing is it too good or are you paying them too much or something? You want to have some, um, but um, you know, over 17 years, I think we've had 90 full-time employees, and we still have 50 of them. Um, I'm very proud of our retention capacity, um, uh, and it's it's. I think what's also made it better in recent years is as we've grown, we've had more career opportunities. People can now move within Vanguard Charitable and and move both move across and up, uh, so that they can broaden their professional experience. And and having um, employees who are interested in volunteering, you mentioned PTOs. Yeah. I, I did have a wacky idea just recently, um, and we haven't done anything on this, so it's just an idea, but it's a little bit the way we think. It was the same. I was reading somewhere that, well, what if we gave everybody, after a certain amount of time working here, um, you know, a week off, a paid sabbatical to go you know, go to South Africa and volunteer or go to, go to Conway, Arkansas and volunteer. Not, we haven't done that. But we are trying to create more opportunities that make it a better workplace and, and also fulfill our mission. And what kind of volunteer organizations do you yourself work for? I've, I've, um, I've had fun over the years. Um, the, really, there have been three um, different types over the years. One was um, the church stuff, which I really did enjoy. It was challenging, but um, I've actually stepped away from that now. Another part that I did earlier was... Um, in my life, when my son was growing up, was was do a lot with the Boy Scouts in the environment, and that was that was just pure joy. I mean, you're out, I love the outdoors. I love I love vistas. I love looking out and being able to see um, kind of um, the outside world, and that was just wonderful. And I served on the board of the local uh, scout troop for many years. More recently, I'm I'm more kind of conservation and environmentally um, involved. Where I go in the summer up in the coast of Maine. There's a friends group that supports the, the national park up in Mount, on Mount Desert Island uh, called Friends of Acadia, and I give to them financially, and I volunteer in the fall. They have you know uh, volunteer days to go out, um, and I go up there every quarter. Uh, just that's my spiritual home. That's where I recharge, and I go to Friends of Acadia, and I spend one of the two days when I'm up there just volunteering. And whatever they want me to do, I'm outside. I'm helping support a national park. One of my passions right now is trying to nudge this level of giving in America because we've been essentially stuck on $300 billion going to charity. It's a lot of money. And gosh darn it, with all the wealth that's been created, all the technology that makes it so much easier, all the $100 million pledges you hear by different people to different causes, we still haven't moved that number. And with government backing off, there are huge needs and what can we do to kind of really get people impassioned about moving that number? That's and, what and, and what would you specifically suggest in um, order to move that number? Well, well, you think about it. If you could move, if you could go from 2% to 3%, 
that's $150 billion or $175 billion that would go to the public good. How can we do that? My encouragement is to have people tell stories about what they've done and the, and the, not just hopefully the good that the charity has done, but, but the feeling that that person has had about what they've... Con- and if, if we can convert people or get people to start thinking about, not about their giving from my $50,000 salary, which is a lot of money, but what can I give out of my assets, not income? And that number one thing that you mentioned, the, uh, the stories, what is Vanguard doing to share those stories um, with the public? Yeah, um, at the Vanguard Chair, we're on our website, we have um, a, uh, a series of videos about um, just little snippets, kind of one-minute things about a variety of our donors uh, telling their story about what they're doing. And yes, it's through Vanguard Charitable, but why it's worked for them, and, and it represents kind of different types of whys as to what they're doing. Um, a second thing we've done is we've published, um, it's, it's a 10-year retrospective of all our grant making to say, here's over the last 10 years, here's all the money we've given away based on the recommendations of our, of our clients. Um, and here's where it's going. And the impact it's having. And, and the impact that it's having. And, and the third thing we are trying to do, and we need to do more about this, is what I mentioned earlier, is talking to charities about having conversations with our donors. Yes, we can do more around that to encourage our existing donors. Give away some of that 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 is built up in your in your account. And and one last question, uh, Ben, when you talk about your leadership style and this this uh, perspective of volunteering and giving back, yeah. um, how could you um, summarize how your your uh, your spirit of volunteerism? has influenced your leadership style itself? Um, that's an interesting question. I think, I think what's happened, Robert, is as I've matured, as I've, um, and in my role as head of Vanguard Charitable, when I started there, at the beginning as 0001 employee, I literally opened the envelopes. And I literally did data entry, along with trying to figure out where we're going to go. Um, and now today, I don't open the envelopes, and I don't. I listen to phone calls, but it is by example, um, and so I do try to tell my own stories. Um, and so when we do have new people come into the business, I spend time with them, and I tell some of the stories that I've shared with you today about about the guy who 23 years later called me up and said you might want to put your name in on that. I told a story at our business meeting about the Hungarian couple in 1956 who showed up in the house uh, thanks to my mother's generosity and the impact that that has. It's the telling the stories. It's the positive reinforcement and playing to people's strengths. It's uh, encouraging others to do the same. Um, and it's, it is, and I need to remind myself, Robert, constantly getting back to our mission. Because when we, and I was saying this to someone yesterday, when, when Vanguard Charitable has had periods of difficulty, which we have, um, um, it invariably has happened when we have forgotten our mission. Even though we are a charity and we try to run it in a very efficient and effective way, we, we have run into trouble when we have not, when we've forgotten our mission, that we are here to try to increase giving in America. And invariably, when we remember the mission and purposely re-engage with it, whether it's through community days or telling our stories or whatever it is, or our volunteer days, 
and every week we have an aisle meeting and someone will step forward and say, I, I, had, I took my volunteer day and I went to XYZ charity in the area. When we remember the mission, we do better. We do better as an organization. We do better as individuals. And I think it's pretty palpable. And I think there's a direct correlation to that. And sometimes I have forgotten that. It, and I must admit, I really like telling my stories. I don't mean it's just part of who I am and their examples. And hopefully, yes, it makes me a little vulnerable in some cases. That's a good thing. But hopefully people can pick up on those examples and be yeah. inspired to make, yeah. their own, um, make their own stories. And, and, and they can do their own. However they want to do is fine by me. That vulnerability, though, does lead to trust all the way back to the beginning. That's a great question. I'm going to think about that one some more. Uh, thank you. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful responses. And uh, for our listeners, the best way to reach Ben and to support Vanguard Charitable's work is through vanguardcharitable.org. And uh, listeners can click on the website links above this podcast for further details. And Ben, it's terrific to talk to you today. Thanks, it really Robert. is. Thanks for sharing your stories. Thanks, Robert. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.